Listen, there's a reason the ultra-wealthy have been investing in fine wine for centuries. Historically stable returns and a lack of volatility make it stand out compared to traditional assets, especially during a downturn. But now you can invest alongside with them with Vint. Vint is an SEC-qualified investment platform that offers shares of the most sought-after wines in the world. So join the thousands of investors diversifying with fine wine and spirits. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to This is Civity. I'm Gina Valeria here at San Francisco State University on KSFS Radio. Today, we are joined by John Esterly and Malka Capel. John is co-executive director and trustee of the Whitman Institute, and Malka is co-founder of the nonprofit Civity. Welcome, you guys. So glad to have you here. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Uh, so, first of all, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, John, some of the work you're doing. Can you tell us about the Whitman Institute and where you're focused? Yeah, uh, the Whitman Institute is a independent uh, philanthropic foundation in San Francisco uh, with a mission of advancing uh, greater social, political, and economic equity by supporting dialogue, relationship building, and inclusive leadership. That's wonderful. So what does that mean to the layperson? So we're explicitly process-oriented in our mission, and really we're trying to raise up the importance of dialogue and relationship mm-hmm. building and linking those to social change. Our, our operating assumption is that how we communicate together, how we think together matters, and should be resourced as if it does. Kind of as a foundation, our our operating assumption is that people either ignore or take for granted the importance of things like listening, uh, engaging in uh, empathic and curious dialogue, and that those things are therefore under-resourced to the detriment of making progress on a lot of these wider social issues. Absolutely, and it's funny that you say that. You know, we think, well, what? Just listen to people. What's the big deal? Why are we focusing on this? And uh, people sometimes see it as sort of, oh, that's a touchy-feely thing. We don't do that. Let's just push through. And so I'm curious, as the Whitman Institute and you have focused your work on trying to make this something more of a priority, you know, what what kind of attitudes have you run into, and how do you – how do you help people understand that that this might be at the crux of where the solutions come from? Yeah, it's a it's it's challenging um, because there's as you say there's kind of this whole soft skills hard skills dichotomy um, that we still I think hold on to as a society, and I I don't think that's a metaphor or a framework that serves us any anymore. Um, and so sometimes it's saying to people. You know, well, listening really matters. And, and sometimes the response will be, well, yeah, sure, everybody listens. What's the big deal? Um, sure, uh, relationships matter. You know, yeah, sure, what's the big deal? But to actually practice listening with curiosity and empathy and respect in all the different arenas that you're in, it's actually hard to do. To actually engage in reflective dialogue and build relationships takes intention and it takes time and it creates uh, or or it means creating some spaces and structures to have those conversations. They don't necessarily just happen on their own. And so when we run into those, sometimes that, that skepticism, my, my personal belief is actually I think that initial skepticism is an easy defense because it means then we don't really have to practice those things. Good point. And I think if we did actually start practicing these different ways of being with each other, actually I think it would be politically radical. Oh my gosh, I love that. I love that concept. And I think about that too. It's like it takes time, it takes work, it takes effort, and we're all very busy people. We've become more and more uh, adept at using this shorthand for people so that we don't have to engage, not because maybe we don't want to, but because it's just, it's, it's too much work, too much effort. But I love that concept you said about politically radical. Um, and and, and uh, Malka, you 
responded to that a little bit. When when the words politically radical are thrown out for this very simple concept of have a relationship with someone, talk to them, listen, look at them, what does that what does that mean to you? Like, how does that all come well, together for you? Well, to me, I mean, I, I've been uh, uh, working kind of in, in politics and policy change for years, and and mostly focusing on kind of those systemic changes, the policy changes, the structural changes, and I, I, it's really. Um, it's become really clear to me, especially in recent years, that systemic change is not enough. That that, that there are some uh, deep, you know, barrier, deep and important barriers in our society that can really only be overcome by individual human emotional change. And we're not going to make, as John said, we're not going to make progress on the big social issues until we stop skipping over that part that is often skipped over. Good point, and and it's skipped over in a sense. One, the busyness, but two, I think everyone sort of assumed we've got this part. We all we've got this part, so let's go. And really, we don't have this part at all. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah uh, I, I think we don't. And and the consequence, though, of that assumption that we have it covered, uh, especially well, certainly in the nonprofit world, but I think even in schools or other, we just don't then resource these processes in the way that we need to. And so part of what we're trying to do at the Institute, part of why we support Civity and Malka's work, it's actually trying to make also the wider public case that we need to explicitly value these processes. We need, as a culture, we need to hold these up and say, these are foundational values for who we are, want to be individually, in community and as a larger society. And we need to then act on those values uh, in a way that honors holding them up that way. In other words, how do we then practice what our rhetoric is? Yeah, and and would you say that this is a departure from what, so how people then freak out about that's not a, would, is this a departure from what we uh, think the United States is or California is or our communities are? Is this a departure or is this something that we've just disconnected from? I would say <clears throat> it's a good question. I'd say it's probably in some ways more that we've been disconnected because we, we, we hold these things up as, you know, oh yeah, let's treat everybody with respect. Sure, well, we listen to people. Sure, uh, engage with others. But we have become disconnected with the, the actual practice of these things. And so our rhetoric doesn't match our reality. And, and right. so I think that's also sometimes one of the hurdles is because people, it gets talked about, so people think it's covered, but it's not acted on and it's not um, resourced. Absolutely. So how do we get at that? Okay, so so we, there is a problem. There's a total disconnect, and people happily go through their lives thinking it's all getting taken care of. But how do we really stop that motion and do it? So so maybe we can look to one of your projects. Like how do you how do you get in there and start pulling people toward uh, the idea that they need to actually stop and relearn this or learn this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, at the institute, we we have a. Uh, an eclectic portfolio of organizations we support because we're not specifically issue-oriented. And basically, the case we want to make is that these processes should be everywhere and anywhere. So, you know, we fund leadership de development programs. We fund some kind of movement-building programs, community engagement, uh, a program called The Beat Within that's a writing and conversation program Ooh. for incarcerated youth. Wow. Um, we fund some journalism and storytelling. You know, so there's a, a range of things because we actually think these processes um, are good in any context. Specifically, we, there's a program we have funded for a long time uh, called On the Move that uh, it operate, works in Napa County. And <clears throat> it's kind of an incubator for programs that are initiated by youth within the community. And so over time, what has emerged from that was a, the first ever program in the country called Voices that was, is for transitioning foster youth that was co-created by emancipated foster youth themselves. There's 
uh, a, pro, a neighborhood initiative that works with uh, local schools and community on building a different pathway to leadership and opportunity from elementary through high school. So, and these are very relational centered Mm -hmm. programs, um, dialogues in both small group reflection and community-wide engagement. Okay. So that's, that's, a, that's a community uh, example. And who in the community is involved in that? Like which community members or organizations are, are taking part? In those instances, it was a combination, of, like with the neighborhood initiative, it was the schools, district, the nonprofit, uh, elected officials and um, uh, community members. Uh, voices, it was the same thing. It's usually trying to take a more uh, systemic approach or a more place-based approach that involves all the different participants in the community. Okay, that's wonderful. So that's a community approach and you're focusing on young people mm -hmm. uh, and trying to pull them together. And what kind of impact have they had? Is there is there an example of something where uh, one or two young people or a group have have really pushed something forward that's been lasting and resonant? Well, for instance, with the Voices program, yeah. which started out, I mean, they I don't have the numbers in front sure. of me of how many people have gone through the program, but it has been held up as a, <clears throat> a national model. It's now been replicated in some other counties. Oh, wow. So it, the effect of the program has, has rippled out. In the neighborhood initiative with the school district, test scores rose dramatically wow. in a school that was um, largely uh, Latino and it had had poor uh, test scores. They now have another uh, program called a parent university that's affiliated with the school. So there are there are sometimes like hard measures around the you know the test score stuff. Although I'm not a big fan of test scores. Um, so that's one, you know, another, another just example, uh, would be a program we have also supported for a long time called Leader Spring, which is a two year fellowship program for, uh, exec, uh, nonprofit executive directors, uh, in the San Francisco and the East Bay. Okay. Um, and it's kind of a peer learning, uh, two year fellowship, um, and a, a, a strong part of that program is actually the relationships that are created through this, these peer cohorts. Uh, executive directors uh, it can sometimes be and often is an isolating position, and um, there's a lot of lot of challenges with the position. So that has been. Uh, a very successful program in both supporting and developing leaders and, and actually enabling them to stay in the field and stay with their organizations when they're in positions where there can be a high level of burnout. Absolutely. So I actually have a, I want to go in a couple different directions mm -hmm. based on what you just said, but I'll, let me start here. There's a show that you may or may not have seen called Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And in the show, they, they portray Silicon Valley leaders as people who, you know, espouse the idea of um, doing good for the community and for the world. and But in reality, they're just working, worried about profits. And it, while that may or may not be true for leaders in our real real life Silicon Valley, that's definitely a perception that a lot of people that I know who work in Silicon Valley have. So when you take these leaders, and so then, so I was thinking about that and thinking about how the leaders uh, might actually want to show that they're engaged with the community. Mm -hmm. So when you take these leaders, who some may be really very, very desirous of connecting, some may think they know it all already and they're doing this for whatever reason. How do you pull together people who are probably incredibly confident, competent, and you know, maybe feel like, well, I've already got it done, I already know this. Do you, do you ever run into that kind of attitude and, and how do you um, funnel them to the place where they're not only relating to each other but thinking about how to really make an impact in their communities? Yeah, I think that... Sorry, that a lot there. No, 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 I think that arises in a, in a, in a lot of different ways and I, and I think what the first response I have that comes up for me is we talk, one of our values at the Institute, certainly, and, and we, it comes up a lot, is actually the value of humility. Mm -hmm. And I think what gets in the way a lot of times with engaging with communities is actually our expertise. And so we come to the community saying, oh, we're going to engage with you, and we have the expertise, and we're going to tell you 
what needs to happen, or 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 it's we're going to listen to you, but actually everybody knows their minds are already made up, so it's an empty exercise. Right. So you know, and this this uh, to go off in a different direction. I have talked <laughs> with people who this comes up around climate change because and how scientists engage with the community. They have a hard time letting go of their expertise. So true. And it's like, oh, if I just tell you what I know and tell you the facts, then you'll change. And it doesn't work that way. It's You, you need to check your expertise and actually meet people where they are and, and listen to them. And I that's just far easier said than done in a lot of levels and context that's so true i i i find that as a as a a person who teaches here at san francisco state i I, we talk a lot about audience and you know you may have a way you want to phrase something but you've got to think about whom to whom are you talking here and yeah get you know speak their language and then bring them in your direction or maybe they help bring you in a different direction but that's got to happen your i love the climate change example it's so true it's like but this is this this is (laughs) But don't you see what right. you should all be I'm like? Why, yeah. <laughs> Baca? Have yeah. you found this in your own work as well? Yes, I mean, I, 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 I you know, th- one thing we say about civity and the civity conversations where you connect with someone who is different from you, um, that it is not a conflict resolution conversation. Mm-hmm. It's not a conversation about coming to common ground on issues, um, because if you. Uh, if you, not that there's anything wrong with that, but if you start there, it's some, it's, it can be very difficult, you know. And, and what we say for the, uh, in order to do a civity conversation, which can happen, can, again, the piece that skipped over maybe before you start coming to common ground on issues is you need to share your own story, uh, create space so that the other person can share his or her story, and then listen to each other. And that's, a, it's a different it's a different kind of conversation, and being real and authentic while you're doing it can be hard for some people. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, uh, and then when we come back, I want to explore this more and explore that concept of expectations, which I think is, is a very fascinating thing. You are listening to KSFS Radio. This is Civity Radio Program. I'm Gina Valeria, and we will be right back. Oh, this is great news. Thanks. Oh, I'm really excited. Are you telling people yet? I think I'll wait a little bit, just in case. Have you told your mom yet? Oh, not yet. Oh, she's going to be so happy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's going to be so nice to finally be able to say I am quitting smoking. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> if you're pregnant, there's one more exciting announcement you can make to your friends and family. that You've decided to quit smoking. It's the first step you can take to protect your baby's health. We can help you quit. Call Great Start at 1-866-66-START. Brought to you by the American Legacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Welcome back to ksfsmedia.net. This is Gina Valeria, and I'm here with John Esterly and Malka Capella, and we are talking about relationship building, the importance of it, and how not having it has impacts our society. So I wanted to talk a little bit about this idea of expectations. Setting expectations is a very important thing. If you walk into a room and I have the personal expectation of something and someone else has a different one, then it's not going to go well no matter what. Uh, but if you walk in and say, all right, everybody stop, here's what we're doing, and it's, it's much more helpful when people know they can sort of, they can stop and reorient their own brain um, and, and, and I mean, you guys are both nodding. So I, I get, have you found that this to be true? And how much do you work on expectation setting in your in your process? I, yeah, I think that's a really important point around how you you know how you frame uh, the the space um, so that um, you create the the conditions where people are going to um, feel like they can be a little vulnerable with mm-hmm. each other. Um, and so it is very important to kind of s- what, are, what are the agreements here about how we're going to be together. And sometimes it does ask of people, take off the, your regular hat that you wear into these kind, and just kind of put that aside and agree that we're, we're going to engage in a different way. One, what we have found, and, and, and I, Malka can speak to this maybe a little more with the civity conversations, is if you start with from a place of storytelling that often that drops people down into a uh, a deeper place mm-hmm. that brings e- empathy in, into the room and whereas a lot of times we start with the issue and we put on our issue hats and we engage with that and we bring out our usual arguments but when we start with our stories then it's it's harder to make someone else the other 
and you at least then go, oh, well, that's your experience. Okay, I can maybe see where that is coming from. Oh, yeah, Malka? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what, that's what the civity conversation is about, is getting to that place, which is a different place for people. And not only is it, um, is it effective, um, storytelling, uh, uh, creating the space for others to tell their stories, that's not only effective for communicating to the other person, but it also... It can change, you know, it can change the first person. I, it changes me if I am telling my story in a real way. I'm not just telling it better for the other person to hear. I'm, uh, by doing it, by being authentic while I'm doing it, I get changed a little bit. And by listening to the other person, I also get changed. So it's, it's really a two-way uh, mm -hmm. change. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, th there's a, I think a lot of people talk about this, but th there's that gentleman, Simon Sinek, who does the what, how, why. I don't know if you see, it's a TED talk now. But he basically says people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And, and the same idea, it's like I can tell you all day that I want to create relationships, but nobody cares. But when you, yeah, when you bring a story, telling, a story into it, why it worked and, and how it was impactful, people start to connect. So can you think about a specific story, uh, either of you, that, that, you, that really resonated, that you really felt sent something in a good direction? Well, it's funny. We were talking earlier. This, this, I'm going to go back a long sure, sure. time ago, back to the early 80s, when I was involved with a uh, program called Crime in the News Media. And it was a program where we were bringing um, proponents of alternatives to incarceration in dialogues around local newsrooms to talk about reporting. And so we would usually bring um, some speakers with us. Uh, sometimes it would be a sociologist who would be speaking, you know, statistics and facts and, and you know, good, good stuff. And then there was another person with us who had uh, been formerly incarcerated at San Quentin. And he grew up in Oakland. And he would talk about his personal story and relate it to life in prison and getting out of prison. And, then, and what, what really struck me back then was you could just see the journalists paying attention to him in a completely different way wow. than the person bringing in the statistics. And so it, it, it's not that the statistics aren't important. And, and relevant, and then, but to first, I think, draw people in and have them pay attention, I think a personal story uh, is helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Or even a story, I think about um, I, I, the, the Daily Show now, Trevor Noah is hosting it, and, and they had a, a, pr a produced piece the other night on on incarceration and basically they had their they had their correspondent go out and talk to these people and he found out that a lot of these really amazing professional successful people he was talking to had been incarcerated at one time and so as the joke was every time he heard about it he'd like slink away he'd be afraid all of a sudden to be talking to these people and then at the end he's like wait I don't have to be afraid of people that were incarcerated so but but like by telling a story you can say statistics all you want but if you relate to oh yes someone might be fearful when they realize the person in front of them has been incarcerated so to play that out for people and and take them on a journey it, it yeah it can be quite effective mm -hmm. um Malka, how about you can you think of a specific story that, or yeah I, I recently had um, um a wonderful evening at the opening of the tenderloin museum here uh and uh it's just opened about a month ago and the you know it's a, it's a it's a museum that shows the history of the tenderloin over the years and uh, basically as a, as, a, as a neighborhood of revolution, starting in the early 1900s, um, and uh, where, where, you can, where you could live and be who you were and, uh, and still be able to afford the, to live there. And uh, uh, they, they had a panel talking about a, a documentary made uh, about the, the history of uh, the trans activists in the Tenderloin, um, many of whom kind of were were streetwalkers and, and made a good living. And, and uh, so the filmmaker was talking about it. And then there were two, two trans women who were in the, you know, who were uh, uh, in, in the documentary in, in the neighborhood. And they, they, talk, you know, they told their stories. And it was, it was wonderful. I mean, it was, it was, it was I, uh, and even hearing about the documentary and hearing about kind of uh, the history, it was, Interesting, but not the same as hearing it from, you know, those two women and what it was like, and you know, how they, why they moved to San Francisco, how they lived in San Francisco, what they're doing now. It's really wow. moving. 
It is. Oh gosh, I, when you're talking, I can remember uh, when I was in when I worked at KCBS in the newsroom. There was, you know, fires. There are house fires all the time. So there was a house fire, and we covered it. And it's the twenty second reader, you know. And then that house fire happened to be my friend's house, or my friend's apartment, and they lost everything. They they got out with their lives. And then, so then we obviously went and we we all donated stuff to them. And then she told her story, and it's the same story, and yet her story was so compelling. And it's like we don't have room to be that compelling on daily news, you know. But but here's this here's this real. Hor horrifying and compelling story that just makes you realize, uh, you know, what she went through and, and, you know, compels you to help, even though she's not doing it for that reason, and compels you to connect in a way. And, and yeah, stories can be so powerful. We hear about, we hear about in San Francisco, the trans community and, and the, the needs and the issues. And, but when you really sit down and talk to someone and they really tell you, like, here's what's going on, it's, it, it's yeah, different. It's, it's different. different. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we, with, uh, Within that landscape, I think um, some of the people we work with also make the case that we need more stories that focus on resilience rather than breakdown. Yeah. Um, we need more stories that are, they're not like feel-good, happy stories, but they're strength-based stories that actually engender a sense of agency and hope rather than overwhelm and depression. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it's so true. And also stories from different lenses. Yes. Uh, you mentioned earlier test scores and so the mm -hmm. achievement opportunity gap. But, you know, there's there are a lot of assumptions made about why test scores are the way they are. Mm -hmm. And, well, let's look at that from a different perspective, which some people are doing, but it's certainly not pushed out into the mainstream yet. And you know this idea. You know this idea that oh, let's we can just we can just explain that away and then we don't have to deal with it. The, the, that population can't handle these tests or whatever. They don't work hard enough. Whatever it is, and it's like no, actually no. That they just let, like let let's let them tell their stories and where they're coming from and bring that into the mix. We'd have such a more beautiful, rich, diverse experience if we did that. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I agree, and that's where they're. You know, for all the the the, the breakdown in the traditional journalistic model. Mm -hmm. um, what has been a positive development is the, the, the rise of community and ethnic-based media. So there are lenses and voices that previously weren't being heard that uh, at now have more of a pathway to being heard, and that's a positive, that's a big positive. Absolutely true, and in the 60s that was starting to happen, and then all of the mainstream news media outlets, hey, we need a diversity reporter, or we need, let's let's hire that, and then, and they brought him in and made him cover things the same way that the mainstream reporter, and so we lost it, and you're right, that the rise of the internet, I mean, there's a lot of garbage on it, but there's a lot of beautiful, compelling, amazing, diverse perspectives, which is very exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing how that evolves, actually. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a good news, bad news thing. Yeah, with, exactly. What's going on. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's really that now it becomes the marketing of it, right? Like, how do you find that, and how do we really get it out there? Um, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, philanthropy's role in this relationship building thing. And the reason I want to talk about this is, is again, I've worked at nonprofits, never foundations. My perspective is foundations fund projects. They fund results. They fund outcomes. They, they, they want to see. So how, you know, it, it, first of all, is my, perce my perception correct? Yes. And, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and secondly, um, you know, it sounds as if you and the Whitman Institute want to shake that up a bit and approach things differently. So are you trying to pull the rest of the philanthropic space to this space with you? Or, um, you know, t tell me a little bit about your, your motivations, your goals, and your hopes. Yeah, um, yeah, because we, we are, we made the decision to spend out in 2022, so we have a defined lifespan. Yeah, we, at the urging, at the urging of um, our, our grantees over time, they, they said they really wanted us uh, to advocate both for what we fund and how we fund. So what we fund is the process relationship orientation. How we fund, though, is uh, we are big proponents of multi-year uh, unrestricted funding, uh, minimized paperwork, uh, inviting relationships with those that we are funding, that we kind of, where we practice what we preach and um, bring people together in different ways. So we are, we are trying to uh, lead and, and contribute to the larger conversation and philanthropy about shifting philanthropic practice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, the question I often raise in 
uh, different circles. And this gets back to the the listening piece is, you know, why is it that the one thing most nonprofit leaders say they need, which is multi-year unrestricted funding, is the one thing most foundations still don't give them? Why? This after a yeah. decade of reports from lots of other respected sources saying, this, yes, this is, a, 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 this is really important funding. So why? It's a really good question. And <laughs> so I think it's, there are issues that, because on the, on the surface it does, well, this, this isn't that logical. If the people you're saying you want to support and the communities want to, you're not paying attention to what they're saying. So I think there are issues of ego and control and power that are um, not easily addressed, but I think we need as a field to create more spaces to constructively engage with those questions. And, and what's hard about it is that foundation, foundations don't generally, as most of us, they, <laughs> we don't like criticism. Mm -hmm. And so it can be very easy to immediately pull away. So in other words, kind of shaming people or saying you're doing it wrong, doing it this way, it, it's not that effective. Yeah, that's not going to work at that's all. That's <laughs> not going to work at all. So it's how do you invite an exploration of these questions, which I think are real questions, in a way that engages people rather than has them running for the door. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's a challenge, but we're, that's something we're trying to figure out. And there are, we're certainly not alone in this. And that's what I think is encouraging for us, having kind of declared an intent to be more of an advocate, is that we are now connecting intentionally with other people who are interested and shifting practice or doing so themselves. Absolutely. It's interesting. I, I'm on the board of Theater Bay Area, and it's although it's a much smaller scale, we have a, um, we have a it's called a cash grant. And it's called that because it, it's, it's as unrestricted as it can possibly be. Because think about, think about we theater people, right? Like we, what? You have to fill out a what? A form? Wait, what? <laughs> what does that mean? You know? and, um, and so in, they, they tried to streamline this process so that artists could get funding for some of their visions. And it's been wildly successful. It's been really interesting. And, and they try to take that approach. Of course, you have tax implications, et cetera. But, but, they're try but it's a very small scale, and it's a, and it's a very specific population. I'm curious, Malka, in your efforts to you know, bring civity to life and, 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 and all of that, you know, you've connected with the Win Whitman Institute, which is great. Tell me a bit about your other experiences with foundations and the, and the idea of sort of selling this idea of relationships. Well, um, that's a good question, too. I, okay, so the um, – I, I, and I want to say uh, uh, that what John talks about, the Whitman Institute absolutely practices what they preach. And, and that is uh, – um, it's uh, not only nice uh, for those of us who have been receiving support, but it's, it's really – it's really supportive. It's, it's uh, that the relationships that the Whitman Institute – you know, builds with its grantees are, they're so much more than money to us. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, you know, inspirations help even just the idea that uh, someone understands and cares about what we're doing is extremely helpful and has is, and is, uh, been uh, crucial, and, and especially when we were starting this and thinking, hmm, you know, this is kind of a weird thing, and, you know, are people going to like it, and are they going to get it, and uh, it was so helpful to have uh, John's support and the support of the institute. Uh, I think that, and, and I was also a funder at one time, I think that the tricky thing about uh, the foundation world is that it is, um, it's, because it's a kind of an eclectic group, um, <laughs> they, they uh, the funders, many of the funders, uh, especially the established foundations, have tried to construct for themselves, uh, kind of what their areas of giving are, and what that has done for them is it helps it helps them communicate to potential grantees. It helps them communicate to board members, but it also puts them in a box, basically. And uh, so, you know, we fund these issue areas and uh, in in these geographic areas and in in this way. Um, that's that's great for specificity. That's great for keeping an eye on the ball. But if something else comes along like relationship building, like, you know, connecting across divides, it's, it's, 
it's hard to fit it in. It's, it's hard to see where it fits in. I mean, we see where it fits in. Of course, we say, oh, it's, you know. <laughs> it's everything. It's everything. <laughs> and, and, uh, but it's, it's uh, so, I, you know, I think that uh, uh, kind of the part of the conversation that, uh, uh, that I and my um, uh, co-founder, Palma, have, have been having with funders and potential funders is, is, is exactly this, that this is, you know, this is new and it's different. Uh, and it doesn't really fit in, in many cases, to uh, to what you're into what you've been funding. But it very much fits into what you want to have happen in the world. Right, and so yeah. framing it that way, yeah. Might be able, but yeah, it's it's not it, it's on its face. It doesn't it doesn't seem to be what you're looking for, but it really is. Yeah, we're going to take another quick. Did you have anything to add, John? Just the, and also the just there's such a continuum of foundations too. That's also important to. Uh, recognize, uh, you know, the mega foundations who are making grants of, you know, 500,000, a million, and somebody who's making grants for five or 50. Sometimes they can bring different orientations and concerns yep. around the scale that they're operating. So when we, it's just something to also hold and take into mm -hmm. consideration. There are a lot of people in big institutions who do who would like to move in the direction we're talking about, and they're working within the constraints of their own institutions. Makes sense, makes sense, thank you. All right, we're gonna take another quick break. Um, this is Gina Valeria with This Is Civity Radio Show on KSFS Radio. Uh, we're here with John Esterly and Malka Capel, and we'll be right back. Wow, I can't believe it, this is great news. Aw, thanks. Oh, I'm so nervous, but I'm excited, too. So are you gonna start telling people, is it too soon? Um, I think I'll wait a little bit, you know, just in case. Yeah, that's smart. <laughs> yeah. Well, people are going to notice soon anyway. Have you told your mom yet? Um, not yet. Oh, she's going to be so happy. Yeah. Oh, it's going to be so nice to finally be able to say, I am quitting smoking. Mm. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. If you're pregnant, there's one more exciting announcement you can make to your friends and family. That you've decided to quit smoking. A lot of women are able to quit successfully when they find out they're pregnant. They have the best motivation there is, a healthy baby. Deciding to quit is the first step you can take to reduce the risks of premature delivery, low birth weight, childhood asthma, and SIDS. We can help you learn to quit. Call Great Start at 1-866-66-START. So do I have to buy you a gift for this too? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Every baby deserves a great start. Brought to you by the American Legacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Welcome back to This is Civity Radio. I am Gina Valeria here with John Esterly of the Whitman Foundation and Malka Capel of Civity. Thanks so much. Uh, so in this final segment of our show, I want to start by mentioning, of course, we had the first Democratic debate last night. And in truth, there was not a sort of section or soundbite or bit that stood out to me. I wanted to play something today. Um, you know, it was fairly straightforward debate. So I wanted to get your thoughts on the debate and the dialogue that's been going on at the national level, because I, uh, you know, because it's, it seems very detrimental to the goals that you both have for our society. So, um, John, let's start with you, and then I want to hear from Malka. Yeah, I, I was struck overall by just the, the dramatic difference between kind of the tone and the, the tenor of the debate last night and the Republican debates, actually. I didn't see the second one. I saw the first one. I'm assuming they were alike. And they were dramatically different. And the, the, the Democratic debate was more substantive. People were civil to each other. They weren't personally attacking each other. And they weren't, I, I think um, uh, O'Malley said at the end, he had noticed on the stage Nobody had made racist comments. Nobody had gone on the attack against it. And so the, I was really struck by the, the difference in, in tone. And, okay, I'm biased. One, one group seemed like they were people who are ready to govern, and the other group seemed like they're still trapped in a reality TV show. Um, where yeah. it's, you know, who's going to get booted off next. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. I mean, we're in a safe space. We're in San Francisco. We're, so I, I know there's a concern about bias, but sometimes you've just got to call it like you see it. I, you know, I know plenty of Republicans who are lovely and amazing and ready to talk, ready to, ready to be part of a team. 
you know, it's, it's a difficult thing because certainly we all have our own political leanings. But I think that's a very interesting thing about the tone of the debate. And granted, there were fewer people on the stage. Mm-hmm. I also noticed that some of the questions levied at the Democratic candidates were very pointed. I mean, as they should be, but they were very pointed and very tough. Um, and I often feel that questions lobbed at the Republican candidates are not that way because I don't know why, per- perhaps a fear of lashing out um, and, and so the, uh, there's more of a finesse with the questions. And that that concerns me as a journalist. But but I also, I don't know, I want us to start calling it like we see it and not worry about that bias, although we it's easy to say that from one side, I guess. Malka, what about you? What are your per- perceptions on it? Well, I, this, is a, this is a tough season, primary season, mm-hmm. uh, because it's, it's, it is the... It is the time of the election when the, the candidates are trying like crazy to get to connect to their base and to demonize the yeah. other base, the other party. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, 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 there was, I, I also thought there was a lot of that going on in the Republican debates. There was a lot of talk about the other um, and, uh, and uh, because the, the, the the way you connect with your own people, your own tribe, uh, is uh, you talk about who isn't in your group and how bad they are. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's politics. Uh, and this is the time before the general election when now then everyone will have to cross over. Uh, so uh, it was interesting. Kind of, I also saw the contrast. Uh, the Democrats uh, uh, need to do that, too. They need to talk to their base. This is the time, uh, and uh, but it, you know, uh, I just got the feeling that the Republican candidates were talking to a smaller group, uh, and uh, and maybe that's the maybe that's more kind of about what the Republican Party is going through at the time mm-hmm. at, at this time uh, versus what the Democrat Democratic Party is doing. But uh, uh, there, yeah, there was a contrast. And, and just briefly, I think. And this has been going on for a long time, but I think that we continue to have this very strange mix of entertainment and politics. And I think we keep moving into entertainment frames for our journalism. And so I think depending on the who's, run, who's doing the debate and who the journalists are, I think they sometimes bring different orientations to that. Yeah. Um, and I think so the frame around the – and it's getting great ratings, the Republic – because it's enter- people are tuning in for their entertainment value, Probably. and then some also because you know they want to hear the substance. But it's a very this mixture of of entertainment and politics has a real downside in, in that it also incentivizes people taking extreme positions. Mm-hmm. It, it, it it incentivizes going after the other. Uh, because it's more dramatic. So we're, on the one hand, we're saying we want a a different kind of political culture and discourse, and everybody talks about wanting to go there. On the other hand, we're steeped in an entertainment culture that is, incentivizes the opposite of that. And, And we haven't figured that out yet. Absolutely. And and it's what we say we want versus what we really mm-hmm. want. Right. You know, we can say all we want. But uh, I, I thought uh, Stephen Colbert in his first week on uh, the which one? Late Show. Late Show. Thank you. Uh, he did a great thing about, you know, he pulled out a bag of Oreo cookies and basically was like, oh, I can't eat these. These are terrible. And then he shows a clip of Trump. He's like, well, maybe just one. You know, and then he shows another clip. He's all having a, and then he's, you know, it was it was a beautiful metaphor. But I think it's, you know, we, we have every intention of wanting to listen to the issues and then we just get completely entertained. And, yeah, my concern is we go down that route and then we ourselves forget that there's a difference um, and we stop talking about issues. So what kind of implications does this have, say, on the community level? I mean, we're seeing our national politics happen we're getting used to this sort of reality show style of communicating with each other. And then we come into our communities, which have real issues that we actually have the ability to impact. What, what's happening at the community level? Is this seeping down, or are we able to, have we been able to keep that reality show feel out of our, out of our community and regional work? Well, in general, I think what people have observed uh, nationally, it, it, it is that it's at the local level that people are more willing to engage in a different kind of conversation that's more problem-solving based mm-hmm. um, than it, it, the higher you go up in the food chain, 
the harder it gets to um, work across differences um, because the structures get so, you know, uh, reified and, and people hold on to their positions. So I think, which isn't to say there isn't, that doesn't seep down to the community level and these problems of the other uh, manifest, but I think they play out they play out differently. Um, and I think part of it is recognizing we have different orientations. I remember a conversation with somebody who was um, working with the homeless in San Francisco, and they they were a community organizer, and they were kind of saying, well, we, we have campaigns for affordable housing. We're always going to have an orientation to win, and that's not going to go away. But what he was saying around the dialogue piece that he started thinking about was what happens after we win? And so the value sometimes of the dialogue piece is actually this campaign is going to end, and how do we want to be with each other after that? Do we want to be distrustful and hating each other, or do we want to say, okay, uh, you had a different strategy, and now we're still, though, part of a community right yes exactly I, I don't know what have you seen yeah, and that's I mean uh, and that, to that last point that that's true for uh, for political office too. the the people spend a lot of time energy and money focusing on uh, electing people and uh, what but what happens and and that is a pretty combative space very combative but what happens after they're elected what happens in the four years in between they have to govern they have to make policy that policy needs to be implementable and implemented mm -hmm. and that requires a different kind of uh, uh, working together uh, and uh, totally different to and a totally different orientation absolutely yeah they say people are great campaigners and or but or great leaders and it's hard to be both sometimes I also want to ask you what what happens if there are other influences in the room I mean it's great to get two people who maybe maybe we other each other maybe we don't want to talk to each other and you can figure out a way to talk but what happens when corruption or money is in the room or uh, you know or other or other sort of influences or agendas you know how do you break that down when you're trying to get two people to communicate to quote to govern or to move a solution forward or to find common ground uh, I think in those instances, well, one, it takes time. Yeah. And so sometimes when you've got that, that kind of stuff in the room, it's, it's hard sometimes to go, okay, out of this one conversation, we're all going to get along and right. everybody, you know, that's mm -hmm. unrealistic. And I think that's, that's part of the challenge with advocating for the process based work and even with foundation funding. Foundations have notoriously short attention spans is they're not willing to give these processes the time they take to make them happen. And so it, it does take a rethinking of how we approach engagement. It's like one specific example in a different realm. Everybody knows, you know, when, you, when public uh, forums don't work, right? You have the mic and everybody comes up and they make their 30-second spiel and they're usually pissed off and everybody's there listening to them and nothing happens. Right. It's just a venting session. But we continue to do this because it's the structure we know. And we're in a time now where we need to reinvent new structures for engagement. And that gets into other work that Malka has done mm -hmm. around your, your paper on creating new civic infrastructures. Mm -hmm. And so it's both paying attention to our relationship, how do we bring and invite trust into the room, but it's also paying attention to the structures that we have of engagement, and that gets into institutional racism and a, a, a whole lot of other stuff. Oh yeah, which we haven't even talked about. I want to hear from Malka, but the, um, I, I was thinking about online, they, we're actually trying to build these structures where there's more, more trust and more ability to speak uh, coherently. Uh, a great example is the uh, Monica Lewinsky gave a TED talk and she talked about public shaming and what it did to mm -hmm. her and it was a compelling and amazing TED talk. Of course the uh, TED talk comment section was just icky, just terrible, terrible things. So what TED, they wrote an article, uh, the person who was in charge of curating that space ended up writing an article saying that was the most difficult work he'd had to do yet um, and yet they, they, they ended up deleting all of the vitriol to 
create space, like get the weeds out. So to create mm. space for the rich discussion. And then the rich discussion did come, but it took such hard work. And so there's these, you know, when you, when you're talking about creating spaces, we can create these spaces in digital spaces or in, in, you know, in person on ground spaces, but you're right. It takes a ton of work and Malka, I'm sure you're very aware of how much work it's taken to do yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it does take a ton of work and it does take time, but uh, one of the reasons we're focusing our civity work uh, at a community level, at mm -hmm. a local level, is that there's there's kind of a natural follow-up. I mean, it, I think that um, you asked about the influence of you know, money and politics and how how can you get around that. I think it's really difficult to get around that uh, at a national, even a statewide level. But uh, at a local level, even if you have just two people in a room, uh, and they get to a certain point in a conversation, the next day they're going to run into each other on the soccer field or in the grocery store, uh, or like I did yesterday, tr fighting over the same parking place. <laughs> and, and so that happens without us having to do anything about it. People are naturally in communities connected in many different ways, and so they're, they're reinforcing whatever positive connections or negative connections they make for that matter, but it's happening kind of all the whole time. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's, I think that starting at a community level is, is, a, is a very hopeful place. Absolutely. You mentioned earlier uh, w w something we should have been talking about, uh, the social trust idea, and the idea that if you can set a relationship off in the right direction, you get the more positive interactions, which helps you, which helps you kind of trust that person, uh, and then helps you sort of trust the, the space more, or the web more that you have. But if it's more negative reaction, then you, you, we tune out, and that's not good for anybody. Yeah, yeah, and the, the the theme of trust is that we could have a whole other discussion on that's that. That's so but, true. You know, um, but in general, that's linked to the relationship thing, and because I think my experience with a lot of in a lot of different uh, contexts we work in and support is people talk about the importance of trust, and especially when you talk about people working together when whatever that the trust is this foundational piece, but again. It's something that I think we tend to hop over and not pay enough attention to what does it take to really, if everybody's talking about the importance of trust, then, and it's a foundational piece, how do we support that? What does it look like? And what does it take to build that trust yeah. over, over time? And so I think that's another area we need to explore, especially when you look at all the polls and the levels of distrust of every institution in our society right now is really high. So if everybody's talking about the importance of trust and everybody is feeling distrustful, what's going on and how do we start addressing that? And I, and I think it, because it can be overwhelming, the civity approach, which is focusing on individual conversations, is a great first step to start. Absolutely, great first step. But And then more work needs to be done to, to rebuild this social trust. Ma, um, we've got about a minute left. Malka, anything you'd like to add? I, I want to second that it is, uh, that it is uh, all about trust, you know, mm -hmm. starting with uh, respect, mm -hmm. uh, moving on to empathy, and mm -hmm. then ultimately trust, if we can get there. If we can get there. We'll get there. Um, you've been listening to This is Civity Radio Show. Today, our guests have been John Esterly, co-executive director and trustee of the Whitman Institute, and Malka Capel, co-founder of the nonprofit Civity, both doing amazing work in our communities to build relationships and social trust to help move our communities forward, find solutions, and common ground. I'm Gina Valeria. We'll be back next week. Uh, this is KSFS Media, San Francisco State. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.